Next time, we'll take the Titanic. Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Airship, the only podcast in the world celebrating films where blimps blow up. Now, if there's one film genre that's synonymous with the 1970s, it's the disaster movie. We had the Towering Inferno, Earthquake, Meteor, The Poseidon Adventure, and the peerless airport films. Given that Hollywood was so intent on putting death and destruction on the big screen, it was only a matter of time before someone had the bright idea of making a film out of one of the most famous disasters of all time. So the film we're looking at on this show is a disaster film and a classic of the exploding airship genre. It's 1975's The Hindenburg. As we're talking about the world's largest hydrogen-filled balloon, it's fitting that I'm joined by another massive gas bag. With me once again is Nick Rehack from French Toast Sunday. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing very well, Will. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well indeed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks once again for uh, making yourself available to uh, come on the Exploding Airship podcast. I'm very excited about the film that we're talking about today. I'm also excited as well. <laughs> now, this is a, uh, I guess you could put this in the uh, disaster movie category. It came out in the 1970s, which is obviously, I guess, the, the, the decade that gave birth to the, the disaster movie as we know it today. And uh, it made me wonder, kind of, you know, what is your favorite disaster movie? My favorite disaster movie is actually a bit different. When you think disaster movie, you think a natural disaster or a plane or some type of vehicle is is going down and and people are going to die. I'm thinking a little bit more outside the box, and I'm going to go with Contagion, uh, the Steven Soderbergh Soderbergh film from 2011. More of a disease and a worldwide disaster where people are dying of, uh, of an epidemic. It's really gripping and really tense the entire time because they look at all the different facets that would happen. They take a look at it from the government side, from the conspiracy theory side, from you know random people, and how it all connects to each other. Uh, you get that a lot of times with you know natural disaster films, and sometimes you get that with the, I guess, transportation disaster films. But with Contagion, there's something about how it was shot and just how all these stories kind of tie together to tell one bigger story. I really, really like that. When I saw this film in theaters. Me and my roommate were watching it, and the entire time this person behind us is just coughing up a storm. And <laughs> it just added this sense of paranoia, and, like, we had popcorn. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to eat this popcorn anymore. <laughs> like, it was just – it was it became like a, a 4D immersion experience, if yeah. you will. Um, upon repeated watchings, no one has – no one around me has been coughing, but it's still as, as gripping – uh, and thrilling, albeit in a different sense than, you know, massive explosions or, or world-ending natural mm. disasters. You can imagine if, uh, you know, William Castle, the uh, the infamous uh, horror movie director from the, uh, the 50s and 60s, you can imagine if William Castle had directed Contagion, he would have been deliberately employing people to sit in theatres where the film was playing and, you know, cough violently throughout the entire film just to just to give you know just to put that extra thought and fear into the audience's mind oh absolutely and and honestly there are some films out there that they're okay films but depending on your theater experience it completely elevates it to something (laughs) otherworldly and this definitely did that 
Okay, well that is a uh, that's a nice choice and uh, a bit of an unexpected choice. I wasn't expecting you to go there, but uh, I saw Contagion a little while back for the first time, and yeah, I I would agree with you. I was very impressed with that that particular movie. I thought it was a, it was a good film, and yeah, you know, gave you something a little bit a little bit different, a little bit uh, more out of step with the kind of the usual disaster movie tropes. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a good watch. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. Okay, I think it's time to uh, slip the mooring lines and get this podcast airborne. So let's see if someone can remind us exactly when this film takes place. On May 3rd, 1937, the dirigible Hindenburg left Germany on a luxury air cruise to the United States. Tomorrow, the Zeppelin will fly over New York City and blow up. She spells out how and where the Zeppelin will be destroyed. She was as long as an ocean liner and as tall as a skyscraper. The ultimate in safety and comfort. A grand hotel set free of the earth and sent soaring into the skies. Rainbows circled her prow. St. Elmo's fire danced through her companionways. Don't be upset. We've been in no danger. Take her down below the fog layer, Hans. She was a fantasy of tomorrow floating through the world of yesterday. Marvelous sensation on an airship. Floating. Timeless. But on May 6th, while preparing to land, the Hindenburg suddenly burst into flames. And the romance of the Zeppelin came to an end. No! No! Why was special security assigned to this flight? From a military standpoint, she's a flying dinosaur. Why was the Gestapo on board? Arrest forced by Douglas Oliver. Brilliant problem. Who was diagramming the framework of the ship? There are no secrets on Zeppelins. What was Operation K? They've picked up my passport. George C. Scott, Anne Bancroft, William Atherton, Roy Thinnes, Gig Young, Burgess Meredith, Charles Durning, Richard A. Dysart. 62 people lived to tell the story. Was it sabotage? What the devil were you doing up there? An accident? You've only got about 15 minutes! An act of God. There's less than 10 minutes left. They're all gonna die. There's a bomb! What really happened on the Hindenburg? After two years of production, Brought to you at a cost of $15 million, the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg came out in 1975. It tells the story of the most famous airship in history, which unexpectedly exploded in May 1937, shortly after it arrived in America after crossing the Atlantic. The resulting inferno killed 36 people, although incredibly more than 60 people managed to escape. Now the official inquiry was unable to determine the cause of the disaster. Various theories have been advanced over the years, including the idea of sabotage. And this film is based on one of those conspiracy theories and a book by Michael M. Mooney, who argued that the Hindenburg was blown up by anti-Nazi activists as a publicity stunt. 
So in the film, after a bomb threat to the Hindenburg is received, a German Air Force colonel is assigned to travel on the airship as a security officer. His mission is to work out who amongst the passengers might be plotting to blow up the blimp. In the great tradition of disaster movies, there's a motley array of guests on board, including a glamorous countess, a famous vaudeville performer, a Broadway composer and his pregnant wife, and an advertising executive with a mysterious past in military intelligence. And to make matters worse or more complicated, everyone seems to have some reason to be the bomber. Like other 1970s disaster movies, there's a sprawling all-star cast. We've got the great George C. Scott, Anne Bancroft, Burgess Meredith and Charles Durning. And there's a treasure trove of great TV actors as well. So we've got Roy Thinnes, better known as architect David Vincent from The Invaders. Richard Dysart, a.k.a. Leland McKenzie from 80s legal drama L.A. Law. Rene Oberjonis, a.k.a. Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And there's even a small role for Val Bisoglio, known to all fans of Quincy as bar owner Danny. Uh, the Hindenburg was directed by the legendary Robert Wise, who made West Side Story, The Sound of Music, and directed uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. There's a couple of very interesting writing credits with Richard Levinson and William Link, the creative minds behind Columbo and Murder, She Wrote, having input on the story. The Hindenburg has a healthy 6.2 rating on IMDb, but interestingly on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has a user rating of just 37%, so an interesting disparity there. Um, but let's find out where my guest falls in all this. So Nick, what did you make of The Hindenburg? I'm somewhere between the 30% and the 6.2 rating. I felt like the premise is really intriguing, but I felt like... I guess from the second act on and how things unfolded, it just kind of missed the mark. Um, it, it's so close to being a, a great mystery and it's so close to being intriguing and keeping you on the edge of your seat, a really gripping, intense thriller, but it just misses it. And I don't know if it's – and and maybe – maybe how can I put this right? I feel like the performances were just really phoned in across the board. Okay. Even some of the more over-the-top characters like the vaudeville player and uh, the uh, Joseph – I can't – the character where he was like a, a trapeze artist or he mm -hmm. did a lot of um, that type of thing. Even with those two characters, I feel like just a lot of this was phoned in and it just wasn't – I didn't feel the emotion. I didn't feel the tension of you know what happened because I didn't feel the gravity of the situation. Well, I'm inclined to completely agree with you. I mean, this this film, uh, it's almost like an airship itself. I mean, it, it's 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 big. It looks impressive, but boy, does it move really slowly. I mean, it is mm -hmm. a, a plot that chugs along at uh, a very few mph per hour and it never misses an opportunity to let the air out of the drama really in this in this particular film and it's i i mean i didn't hate it but boy it came i came very close to to really getting sick of of this particular movie and yeah i kind of agree with what you said that it actually starts really well so it starts quite briskly and quite economically so you know the opening scene sets up the idea that there is 
going to be some kind of sabotage attempt on the Hindenburg and we're very quickly introduced to this army colonel who's going to be charged by Joseph Goebbels with protecting the Hindenburg from this bomb threat. Uh, we're then introduced to this motley array of characters who are going to be on board the Hindenburg. We, you know, we're introduced to them all and, and the film starts to introduce the ideas behind why they might be interested in blowing up the Hindenburg. But after about 30 minutes, we get into the kind of the middle section of this film. The next hour is a real, it's a real hard slog and... The film seems incapable of really injecting any drama into the film. And I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a, a sort of a mysterious pen that is introduced right at the beginning of the film. And the pen uh, MacGuffin is quickly debunked uh, where it turns out to just be basically somebody trying to smuggle some diamonds on board. You know, for reasons that are never explained... You know, the George C. Scott's character, who is this colonel charged with protecting the blimp, he just sort of leaps on this pen for absolutely no reason at all, discovers the gems and then just lets the guy go. I mean, just, uh, you know, the film's ideas of adding drama, adding tension are just are just so naff that every time the film tries to kind of up the ante, up the stakes, it just falls totally flat. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. There's no weight to anything. When they find the pen, you should be like, okay, the pen, here it is. And then when it's revealed that it's that, it's not the sense of like, oh, no, then what could it be? It's just like, oh, okay. And then we move on to something else. It's like, where's the sense of urgency? Even the scenes, and this is jumping ahead just a bit, but, you know, when the plane is, or the, excuse me, when the airship is starting to come down over the icebergs and they're trying to patch it and get it, you know, back up to where it's supposed to be, there's no tension there's no that should be the most thrilling part of this thing is mm. coming down and they have little to no time to get it back up and it's just not there i'm not feeling the intrigue the mystery will they or won't they it's just like oh okay maybe maybe it'll happen and i think what hurts that though is you can't inject too much of that into this because we already know how it ends because it's based mm. on something that really happened so you can only play with it so much so they kind of dug themselves in a hole to begin with of how can you make it that much more intriguing and mysterious and you bringing up how the writers are involved with like Columbo and Murder She Wrote I kind of feel like well was that before or after this because this is this is a softball this isn't they're not really bringing their A game with this unless they had some ideas but were kind of you know held back I this this film just continues to fall short in those aspects well, I think you raise a really interesting point about the fact that we know the ultimate outcome of this movie. We know that the Hindenburg is going to explode. And when I was watching this film, I was reminded of the film Titanic. Now, we, we obviously know that that film is going to end with the Titanic sinking. But that film is not really about how the Titanic sinks or why the Titanic sinks. It's, it's really ultimately about the relationship between... Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet and we know that there is this ticking clock of the Titanic that it, at some point it is going to sink within the film so the, 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 the tension and the interest in the film comes from the fact that these two characters are you know 
you know the tension comes from their developing relationship taking place against the ticking clock of we know that there's this oncoming disaster and how is it going to play out for these particular characters whereas in in this film they the whole film is about how did the hindenburg ultimately explode and they don't really you know we nobody really knows do do we i mean the, 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 that's the reality of this particular situation is that this is this particular conspiracy theory that that has been put forward in this book that's put forward in this film it's it's kind of been debunked i mean there isn't there's very little evidence to actually say that that's the reason so it's just like well what are we actually what are we actually watching here yeah, and you make a great point with the Titanic. It does such a good job of, hey, you know what? Let's focus on this story about people and use the event as kind of a background, mm. as a backdrop. And what Titanic does is even on rewatches, you're watching the story, and then when the event starts to happen, you're like, oh, oh, that's right. They're on the Titanic. It's about to sink. Will they make it? You don't get that with the Hindenburg. And maybe this is a little rude to say, but at some point I was like, can this thing just blow up already? Because I'm ready for it to be over. <laughs> that's again terrible to say but the film runs a good 30 to 40 minutes too long oh really um it really could have you could have focused on some relationships between the two even if you kind of shoehorn the conspiracy in towards the end of like hey this guy's acting suspicious let's lay some red herrings and then eventually boom there's a bomb on board that adds some intrigue because now you're like oh i thought it blew up because of this well now maybe it's because of that instead so there's all these different directions they could have taken it but instead Mm -hmm. they just sink they just sit there stagnant well let's dig a little bit more into the mystery elements of this film so we've got a whole host of passengers and crew on this film and the film sets them up to have motivations to blow up the airship so they're trying to i guess establish a a sort of murder on the orient airship express that type of a vibe here but the motivations that it establishes for these characters they never really feel they're strong enough for them to actually blow up an airship i mean there is a, a character here who is a bit of a gambler has no discernible means of income and that's his only motivation for potentially blowing up this particular airship there is a, a countess who is a bit disgruntled at having some of her land taken away by the by the nazi state you know there is a mysterious advertising executive on board Nobody really seems to have terribly sort of strong, you know, reasons for, for, for doing anything. You know, there's there's somebody who keeps, you know, there's another member of the uh, on board this airship who who keeps making mysterious visits to his pet dog who's on board. I mean, this the, the, the film's cast of suspects are almost laughably weak. Yeah, it's as if the characters exist solely so they could say, hey, is it this person? Or maybe it's that person. It's like they solely are there just to be a red herring. And it's disappointing, too, because you could have taken these things and really driven it in and have it become that much more suspenseful. I mean, the only time we really get an idea of suspense is when George C. Scott's character is walking around the inside and he looks up and all of a sudden there's just a random guy hanging out where he really shouldn't be. And he's very quiet and he's very mysterious Mm. and we try to figure out who he is. And ultimately, some of these people with their backgrounds just don't pay off. Like you have... Um, the reporter who, you know, he's like, oh, well, you know, my arch or not, excuse me, the marketing guy, you know, my I'm going to just paraphrase here. My arch nemesis, he's on a boat and we're kind of on our we're racing to get over here for this story, so on and so forth. And it's like, OK, well, nothing really happens because of that. 
And then another part of me thinks that with this being a Nazi airship and they're trying to show their supremacy and look at this great thing where a superpower, look what we can do. Why are all these people who have problems with them on the <laughs> ship to begin with? Well, and that's I, another hard reason I have a hard time trying to be empathetic or sympathetic towards these uh, some of these people. They're Nazis. I mean, <laughs> yes, most don't want to be there. Most of them have a thing against them, but still, it's like, what are you, what are you doing up here? Why are you doing this? Well, I probably see it a little bit differently because it, even even the I guess even the Nazis are they're kind of they're good Nazis or they're disgruntled Nazis. So you know George George C. Scott's character, who is this this army colonel who's been charged with protecting the Hindenburg, he has lost his son in the Spanish Civil War where the uh, where the, the Nazi forces were um, siding with uh, with the kind of the Spanish uh, with Franco and the Spanish state at that particular time he's also disgruntled because he's appalled at the massacres which uh, the German military has assisted in during that particular that particular conflict and that's just one example of, uh, of 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 multiple characters in this in this film who have some sort of disgruntlement with the Nazi state, and I guess that is needed because the whole idea of this film is that somebody is going to blow up the Hindenburg as a protest a about the Nazis. So, you know, if you're going to have convincing suspects, you need to have a lot of people on board this airship who are anti-Nazi. But it just sort of it just gets to a point within this film where you just think this is this is ridiculous the nazis you know a lot of people had voted for them a lot of people supported them and there doesn't yeah. seem to be anyone on board this goddamn airship who is pro is pro nazi like this is an airship of anti nazis this is this is just kind of not believable yeah, and and sometimes they're so blasé about it, like, yeah, I'm not really a fan because of X, <laughs> Y, and Z. And there's no strong conviction. There's no like secret where they're locking eyes and making a hand movement or saying a certain phrase that means something. There's nothing like that. The uh, the closest thing we get is when the vaudeville player is doing a song and dance number, mm. and he's kind of poking fun at the Führer and and Nazi and, and Germany in general. And some people are having a laugh at it, but the soldiers and some of the military higher ups are like, yeah, no, you're not going to sing this song anymore and then everybody just goes on about their day where is the discipline where is they lock him up on the brig line like where is that whole like if they're such bullies if it's such a bad mm. thing show us we obviously know in hindsight we know that they're a bad thing but you know give us just a little bit more to say like don't forget these are the bad guys and here's why and we just don't get that it just kind of glosses over and you're expected to just go with it now this film like many of the disaster movies of the 1970s has a has a big huge sprawling cast i mean what did you think of the the actors in this film did who caught your eye for good reasons or you know perhaps you know who did you perhaps notice for for bad reasons you know who perhaps let you down who perhaps disappointed you in this film well, three people jump out at me immediately. One is George C. Scott. I feel like he just kind of phoned this in. He oh, was yeah. just here. He kind of collected the paycheck, and he mm. went on about his day like you could not get him to care about anything. <laughs> not even like the sadness or a bit of a tear roll yeah. for his – I mean I get it. He's a colonel. He's supposed to be a steadfast, very strong man, but we don't – I don't get that. I never he's once great actor, got that vibe and he him. gives us he nothing is. in this movie. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, 
The other two that jump out, uh, Burgess Meredith, I didn't know that he had a role outside of being Mickey and Rocky. <laughs> so it was cool to see him. And I'm like, okay, you know, I see you. One guy that really caught me off guard and kind of got me excited, one of the first times they cut – because the airship is leaving Germany and it's heading over to a base in New Jersey, which is a whole other series of questions I have, but that's mm. for another day. Um, as they're getting there, they're phoning in and saying, hey, we're going to be a little bit late, and they tell all the reporters, hey, guys, they're going to be late. Well, there's a reporter with a red tie, and he is Lloyd the bartender from The Shining. And ah. I thought that was really cool because I haven't seen many films where this guy's popping up. Granted, he's a creepy looking dude, and I don't think you'd want him to be, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, steadfast and front and center. But still, to see Joe Turkle's his name, hmm. to see Joe Turkle kind of standing there, it's like, hey, I know that guy. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about the exploding airship action. In a world where podcasts already seem to address every imaginable subject. One man broke new ground with a seemingly random obsession about exploding helicopters in movies. He was a podcaster on the edge, a maverick broadcaster who played by his own rules. Now, he has a last chance to talk about the strange way helicopters explode in film. Exploding Helicopter, available on iTunes and Podomatic now. Think you know about chopper fireballs? Think again. We're back, and now we're going to take a look at the exploding airship action. As the airship comes into land, or dock, the timer on the bomb is inexorably counting down. Having learned of its whereabouts, Colonel Ritter attempts to defuse the bomb, but is unable to do so in time. The bomb explodes, which sets the rear of the airship ablaze. The film transitions to monochrome, as passengers and crew struggle to survive the fire. Scenes shot for the film are then intercut with actual newsreel footage of the Hindenburg disaster. Uh, Nick, what did you make of the exploding airship action? I felt two things. Uh, I felt a bit of excitement because there was something exciting happening in the film, something you know genuinely interesting. Finally, but but <laughs> but then I felt kind of gross watching it. Mm. Um, I I don't know why, but the the way they intercut the actual footage of what was going on versus i guess their reenaction at this point uh a reenactment excuse me it just i felt weird i felt like oh sh is this something that we really should be doing right now because you know legitimate people died uh, real people died and were doing this thing i could see if they recreated a, the entire thing on their own and try to make it look just like the footage but i think they used legitimate footage and it's just there's a weird it's it's a weird vibe I'm getting. And then you have, you know, contrasted to today where uh, there's apparently uh, train derailment footage in Bird Box, the mm. Netflix film, that they are finally editing that out of the film. So there's less of that. But it's just I, I don't know. It seemed kind of weird to me. And then it just kept going, which I don't think I've ever seen an explosion last for so long. <laughs> It just kept blowing up and just stayed on fire and just kept going and going. And then there was – I don't know if you caught this or not. There was a weird scene where two guys come running up to, I guess, a porthole or enough of an opening for people to jump out of, a woman and two uh, little boys. The woman jumps first, and then the one boy, he's struggling to jump, and the guy shouts at him, what, are you going to let a girl be braver than you? 
And then the boy eventually jumps, and I'm like, now is not the time to be chastising this kid because he's not jumping. Like, what is happening here? What? Yeah, it. Um, yeah, I completely agree. The combination of real footage with the with footage that they shot for the movie, it is it's very bizarre and. It, it, it leaves you as a viewer not quite understanding how you should be reacting to, to what you're watching at that particular moment. And, uh, you know, you mentioned it already. I was going to I was going to mention it myself, the whole the whole controversy around Bird Box, which, as mm-hmm. you as you said, is is now being re-edited to remove that uh, real life disaster footage which was incorporated in that particular film and um, watching the Hindenburg obviously the when that film came out it was some 40 years after the particular tragedy so um, a little bit different to Bird Box where the the the, the footage of the Canadian the train derailment is much more recent but you know it's it, it was a it's a very interesting decision on multiple multiple levels and I don't know what people watching it at the time thought. Certainly watching today, it is it is a, a very strange experience to be watching something where you know, you know, you're looking at the real newsreel footage and you're thinking, there's actually real people probably dying at this particular moment. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not sure that that really, given the, the, the tone of the film up until that particular point, I'm, I, you know, it's not like it's frivolous, but I'm just not sure that, uh, it's c- kind of justified to include that footage in that footage in this movie. Yeah, it's weird. And again, they could have done something where they recreated it and had it look very similar, if not nearly, you know, a shot by shot remake, if you will. Um, but to throw it in there and then to intersplice it with the stuff they have too, it's just, it's it's just kind of it's kind of weird. And I, like you said, maybe it it played differently and people were kind of you know sitting there in silence and the shock and the horror and everything. But now when you watch it, it's just it's just kind of out of place. It doesn't fit well with the rest of the film, and and especially because the look of it too. And obviously, forty years difference. Of course, the film stock's going to look a little bit different. Uh, it's going to react a bit different of a way. But it just doesn't it just doesn't sit right. I feel like they could have they could have rewrote it. And then the very end when spoilers they're showing the footage and then they just start showing up faces of people that died but then at the same time people who lived or who survived it's you got to pick one here you have to say you know list all the dead and then move on you can't go dead oh but they're alive dead dead oh but they're alive dead alive dead dead hey the dog's alive dead dead (laughs) it's just a really weird mix yeah i mean that that particular moment in the film was as weird as it was to watch the actual footage of the Hindenburg disaster intercut with footage that was shot for this particular movie. As weird as it was to watch that particular kind of mashup of real and fictionalized material, you then have at the very end of this film as a kind of epilogue, the, the film then brings up on the screen the, the pictures of the cast members and it and it just sort of says, you know, says their name and then it says whether they survived or whether they died. And it proceeds for, you know, that whole, that particular element of the film takes about, I don't know, 30 seconds. 
and it sort of lists five or six characters, tells you their name and tells you whether they lived or died. And then it gets to a point where it's almost as if the film gets bored of whether it's of the fact that it's telling you whether people lived or died. And it just just starts to show you pictures of people, doesn't tell yeah. you their name. And it just says died, survived, died, survived. And then the very last picture that it puts up on screen is the dog. And I don't know about you. But I laughed at that particular moment because it just was just so patently absurd. It was just such an absurd note to end on. I ended up laughing. I, I, I don't know if that was your reaction as well. Oh, immediately started laughing. And I said, I can't wait to talk to Will about this because <laughs> this is absolutely ludicrous. And it changes the entire... Yeah. vibe of the film it it totally takes away from all the tragedy you just saw you're not allowed to sit with it and reflect on it you're just like oh hey don't hey the dog lived and you're like okay good but then like you said they kind of get bored and they stop listing people's names so it's like what are they more important than them because like it's yeah. it becomes this whole weird question and it it's one i didn't want to answer it completely punctures the the drama that, or that they are trying to communicate so mm -hmm. if they had just continued to sort of list people who had survived and died whether they told you their name or not i guess that would have had some emotional weight because you, it, it's reinforcing the fact that this was a real tragedy and real people died but to have the last one as a dog that just completely undercuts it just kicks the stool out from yeah. everything that the the film is trying to be set up at that at that particular moment and it just ends it on a on a comedic note i mean it just it was a catastrophically bad choice i i can't i can't i can't think how that happened i can't think how that survived the editing process you know they may have filmed it somebody watched it and somebody thought oh god that that's terrible it was a good idea but you know what it's not working we need to edit that out i can't believe that that made it into the into the finished film yeah it's it's i don't understand it <laughs> i don't know what they were thinking <laughs> okay i think it's time to let the air out on this show nick thanks for helping me out once again why don't you show our listeners a little bit of uh, leg and pimp out your stuff <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you can find myself over at FrenchToastSunday.com, posts and podcasts and all kind of goodness about films that you like, films that you don't like, films that we like, films that we don't like. It's a great conversation. Come and join and be a part of it. And if you like what you listen to, why not give us a review on iTunes? And if you didn't like it, why not just keep your thoughts to yourself? We'll be back soon, but until then... Keep watching the skies for those exploding airships. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.